good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from John 21. Uh, before we read, we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask now that you teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped up, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were, there were there with it, with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. 
this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the brothers and this that this among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If, any, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. For those of you who are here in the building, it's much more straightforward. Here we are, and it's good to have you here. This is our final sermon in the study of John's Gospel. We began this last year in Term 3 in the Delta lockdown, and uh, we did it in Term 3 in Term 4, and, and, and in the second half of this term, we've come back from Chapter 18 on to try and finish it off as we've approached Easter. Um, I do think for many people, this is probably the least known of the four Gospels, and I wonder if even within John, Chapter 21 is the least known of all the chapters. I don't know if that's your experience, but I'd love to know what you just made of it, as Doug read for us. By far and away, it is the longest account in the Gospels of the time period beyond, kind of after, that first Easter Sunday when Jesus appeared and the tomb was found empty. Matthew has just five verses on that time period, three of which are the Great Commission. Mark's got none, if we take the shorter ending. Luke's got only three, and John's got this whole chapter full of stuff that we don't find anywhere else. Um, So many times in this series, we've referred to the closing two verses of chapter 20, uh, where John explains his purpose for writing the gospel. And uh, lots of people think that would have been a perfectly adequate way to end his gospel. Why then chapter 21? What does it add? What is its purpose? Is it about giving us another convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Well, maybe. Although if that is the reason that this chapter is here, we have to say it's a little bit anticlimactic after that magnificent scene with with Thomas and Jesus appeared to him and challenged him, look, put your hands into my side where the spear went in and reach out and touch the nail marks. And Thomas magnificently confessed, my Lord and my God. Well, if someone wasn't convinced by that account, is there anything here in chapter 21 that would really get them across the line? It's also hard to think that this chapter is here primarily to show us another example of Jesus performing a miraculous sign. Not that there's anything wrong with what he does here, but again, after he's been risen from the dead, how is this miraculous catch of fish really going to add to our understanding of Jesus in any way? Now, it's these kinds of things and other issues as well that I haven't even raised for you that lead lots of people to kind of just dismiss this chapter entirely. In fact, there's scholars who work on John's Gospel and they say, look, what John wrote ended at chapter 20 and this chapter was just added in at a much later date. However, we actually have no copies anywhere of John's Gospel without chapter 21. And so we have to really conclude that John wrote this. And our challenge today is to try and work out why 
Why did John consider this to be the appropriate and important way to finish his gospel? For readers like us, what was he trying to communicate? Well, you can see a couple of headings on your outline to get us through. First of all, the disciples' absolute need for Jesus. Um, this is the first 14 verses. The setting is that the disciples have left Jerusalem. They're now back up in the north of the country by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, on this particular occasion, there are seven of them together. Some of them are named, some of them are not. Peter decides to go fishing and the others say they'll go with him. I don't think we're probably meant to read into that any sense of apostasy on the part of the disciples as if they're now kind of abandoned their calling and returned to their pre-disciple life. Because um, in the conversation that follows, uh, Jesus really meets them in fellowship and friendship. There's no correction from him. Um, I think this is just pragmatic. They, they need to eat and they're by a lake. They've got a, a fishing boat and they've got some nets. We can join those dots. But despite the background that at least some of them have in the fishing industry, on this particular occasion it's a complete flop because they spend all night out on the water and they don't catch a thing. Uh, early the next morning, Jesus stands on the shore. They don't yet recognise him. Perhaps it's still too dark. But they can hear each other. And so when he finds out from them that they haven't caught anything, he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And in fact, they find so many that they can't even haul in the net. Now that outcome is more than enough for John, the disciple Jesus loved, to work things out. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. That's more than enough for Peter to spring into action and he kind of just jumps off the boat into the water to swim ashore and the others follow in the boat with the net still following in the, behind. This is hardly the action of, of a group of men who have apostatized, is it? They are eager to go to be with Jesus. When they land though, they can see how carefully Jesus has prepared for this moment. There's a little fire there with some burning coals, it's got some fish on it and there's some bread as well. And Jesus tells them to bring in some of the fish they've just caught. John even records for us the precise number. There's 153 of them. Almost as if in their sheer incredulity at what had happened, they counted them just to be sure. And there's a little mention about how the net wasn't torn and maybe that's significant. And then in verse 12, Jesus invites them to come and have breakfast, which they do. And in verse 13, he takes some of the bread and he gives it to them and then he does the same with the fish. What is this all about? I think the key is to work out the contrast between verse 3 and verse 7 because of verse 4. So verse 3, they fish all night and they don't catch a thing. Verse 7, they throw their net on the right side of the boat and the, the catch is so big they can't haul it in because verse 4, now Jesus is with them. Now Jesus is directing them, instructing them, providing for them this great catch of fish. And it's not just that, is it? Remember, there's the fire on the shore with the fish and the bread and he invites them to breakfast and he himself serves them. Do we begin to see what is being taught to us here? I, I don't think this miracle is here primarily to teach us something about Jesus. I think this miracle here is primarily to teach us something about the disciples. And what it's here to teach us about the disciples is their absolute need for Jesus. See, without him, they are fruitless and incompetent and unproductive. With him, they catch more fish than even seven of them can pull into the boat. 
go back a couple of chapters in John's Gospel. Remember chapters 13 to 17? There was that long conversation the night before Jesus died in the upper room and they, they shared the Passover meal and he uh, washed their feet and, and he taught them about all the things that were coming up ahead. One of the things he made clear to them is that he has so much work for these men to do. Now that he has come, and finished the work of salvation that the Father had given him. His disciples are going to be his witnesses in the world. Proclaiming salvation in his name. Proclaiming eternal life in his name. Proclaiming the truth about God in his name. That Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And they're going to do this in the midst of the world's hatred and opposition. I don't know if you can recall that Jesus said, look, they are going to put you out of the synagogue. And a time is even coming when the person who puts you to death will think they are offering a service to God. And so Jesus has got this great work for the disciples to do and it's going to be a hard work and they will suffer for it. And what Jesus needs to impress upon them now is that for this work, they will be completely and utterly dependent on him. If they try and do this without his strength, if they try and do this without his help, if they try and do this without his provision and his direction and his instruction, well, it's going to be like a group of professional fishermen spending the whole night on the lake and not catching anything. But with the help of the Lord, with the provision of the Lord, with the direction of the Lord and the strength of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. Well, in those conditions, the kingdom of God will grow unstoppably. For the catch will be miraculous and still the net won't break. Do you see how it works? Now that Jesus has lain down his life in death on the cross and he's taken it up again in resurrection, the focus of activity shifts from Jesus to his disciples. And what they must do is his witnesses to the world. It's just that for that work, they must always remember that they are fully dependent on the Lord in every way. That's what they had to learn with this miraculous catch of fish. Okay, second point, let's keep going. We'll see how it keeps building. Uh, Peter's future ministry for Jesus. Because after the disciples finish eating, there's a little conversation between Jesus and Simon Peter. Um, the conversation has got three parts to it and it's repeated three times overall. Uh, each time it begins with Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? Every time, Peter responds, not just by affirming, yes, I do, but actually by uh, affirming Jesus' own knowledge of the fact. Lord, you know that I love you. And then three times over, Jesus appoints him to minister to his disciples. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, take care of my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Uh, notice four things uh, briefly. First, the conversation happens three times. That seems to be a deliberate echo of the fact that three times Peter disowned Jesus. In other words, 
Although that failure can't be wiped from the record, it's now an indelible part of the gospel story, yet such is the wonderful mercy of God that here in chapter 21, Peter is restored in fellowship to his Lord and he's forgiven. And is that not the same hope for every one of us who with shame can acknowledge the times that we have failed to love the Lord Jesus as we ought to have? Because can't we all acknowledge that reality in our lives? Times where we have failed to love the Lord as we ought? But you see what happens to Peter is our hope. We stand before him, not by our own merit, but always because of his overwhelming mercy and grace. Uh, second, see that Peter's restoration is public, not private. Um, in other words, the other disciples see and hear it just as they did in chapter 13 when Jesus predicted his failure. Because this moment is not just for Peter, it's also for them. Because third, this isn't just a moment of personal restoration between Peter and his Lord. This is a moment of Peter's commissioning, of his kind of appointment to serve the Lord. Did you notice how the emphasis is on the activity that Peter must do, not on the office that he will hold? Uh, he is to care for and feed. That's what he's to do. And this emphasis is to be there for every Christian leader of every kind in every time and place. Our calling is not to titles and ranks, but to a particular manner of loving service towards the sheep. Uh, finally, the ones that Peter is to serve are not his, but the Lord's. Feed my lambs, says Jesus. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Uh, this too, I think, is a basic building block that should be taken to heart for every Christian leader in every time and place of any kind. Those who are to be cared for and fed never belong to that leader as if the size of the flock were somehow reflective of their great leadership prowess, or as if the leader could simply take liberties and lord it over the sheep, because after all, do not the sheep belong to them? No, they don't. The sheep that must be cared for and fed are given in trust by the chief shepherd. They belong to him. They have been purchased with his blood. And they must be cared for in just such a manner. But you see, such an attitude of care will only develop in the lives of Christian leaders when it has exactly the same starting point that Jesus took Peter to, which is an earnest love for him that springs from the heart. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Friends, if any of us has the great responsibility of caring for and feeding the sheep of Jesus, and lots of us do in all sorts of situations, if any of us aspires to the great responsibility of caring for and feeding the sheep of Jesus, and I hope that many of us do, because in all the world there is no greater privilege, then we must, with God's help, continue to kindle our love for the Lord. Everything starts with this. 
And if any of us lacks it, we simply are not fit to care for and feed the sheep of Jesus. In fact, we are the ones who need to be cared for and fed. Well, third point, Peter's future suffering for Jesus. Um, Verse 18, the conversation goes on without missing a beat. Jesus tells Peter, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Uh, I don't know if this is your response uh, to these verses. I actually find it a little bit hard to read what Jesus says here without kind of feeling a bit of the the sadness of these words. Um, This direct prediction from Jesus of Peter's future, of of his end, of his death, if you like. Although I wonder if, uh, for some of us perhaps, it it sounds a little bit harmless, as if Peter is simply going to live to a ripe old age where he will need the help of others around him to dress him and to lead him around. And lots of us know, you know, in in our own personal experience of caring for family members, that if we live long enough, that that is often the shape that life begins to take. Others help dress you and they lead you here and there. and, And, you know, it sounds kind of a bit benign. But actually, the commentators are pretty certain that the reference to stretching out your hands is probably a way of talking about crucifixion. And when we remember that in chapter 18, the soldiers had dressed Jesus in the purple robe and the crown of thorns, and then they had led him out to Golgotha, where in so many ways he hadn't wanted to go. And that kind of puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? And church tradition, early church tradition, uh, tells us that Peter was actually crucified. It, it may not be accurate, but that's what the tradition suggests. In Rome, under Nero, the emperor. And it's no wonder then that in verse 19, Jesus said this not simply to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would die, but rather to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Because in the end, that's really the only thing that matters, isn't it? Whether our lives, or even our deaths, if need be, result in the glory of God. Just for a moment, do this thought experiment with me. Imagine two paths in the life of the Apostle Peter. In the first path, Go back to chapter 18. He disowns Jesus three times, but then he never returns. He's never restored in fellowship to Jesus. Instead, he continues down that path, neither living for Jesus uh, nor following him. He makes it to a ripe old age fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He avoids all the shame and the pain of crucifixion for Christ. That's one path. Uh, The other path is the way things actually went. He disowns Jesus three times in chapter 18, but in chapter 21, he is restored three times to Jesus. He takes up that ministry of caring for and feeding the sheep of Jesus, and then for Christ's sake, he is crucified. Now, to try and put a really sharp edge on it, which of 
those two paths instinctively do you consider a better result? Which of those two paths do you consider a better outcome? The one where Peter walks away from Christ, lives a long life of safety and comfort, but brings no glory to God. Or the one where Peter follows Christ, cares for his people, and then brings glory to God by his crucifixion for Christ. Do you see the choice? It's pretty stark, isn't it? That's for Peter. Let's now apply that to ourselves. Which is better? Which is worse? A life free from suffering, but also free from the Lord and therefore absent the glory of God? Or a life full of the Lord and along with it suffering and the promise of bringing glory to God? Which is better? Which is worse? And now for many of us, let's make it even pinchier. Which of those paths do we instinctively think is better for our children? And if we think the answer is obvious, then let's now think through some of the implications of that. For the priority we place on bringing them up in the life of God's church and in the fellowship of God's people and from our perspective as parents, doing all that we can to bring them every week to kids' church and if they're old enough, to Friday night youth or Sunday small groups... And let's think through the implications of all that for the model that they see in us, our, our maintenance of, of prioritising our praying and our Bible reading and our evangelism and our commitment to being at church and Bible study each week and, and to willingly serve in ministry and to give financially for the work of the gospel and even if it's necessary to suffer for the name of Christ. See, what Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, in the first place, it's just about Peter. But there is a lesson here which is actually about the life of every disciple of Christ. Our lives are to be lived for the Lord so that whether by living or dying, it doesn't matter. God is glorified. Well, the end of uh, chapter 19 uh, sorry, at the end of verse 19, Peter calls uh, Peter to follow him. I suspect he really just means literally, like come with me, um, which he does. And now the disciple Jesus loved, our author John, kind of drops in and falls in behind them. And that means Peter looks back and says, well, Lord, what about him? I mean, you've told me about me. What about this guy? And verse 22, Jesus basically tells him to mind his own business. It's not his job to worry about any other disciple. And so we kind of understand here that you know, we won't all be used by the Lord in exactly the same way. If the Lord chooses one path for one disciple and a different path for another, that's his business, not ours. But you see, the particular form of words that Jesus used had led to a kind of misunderstanding and a rumour that grew among the early disciples that maybe Jesus had said John would never die. And what humility John has to correct that record and set it straight, Jesus never said that. But either way, our task is the same as Peter's, to follow the Lord faithfully and trust him to work out the rest. Well, I wonder if by this point you feel like we're starting to get a little bit of a handle on chapter 21 and why John has chosen to end his gospel this way. 
Um, not just the, the kind of great catch of fish enabled by Jesus, but also his charge for Peter to feed his sheep and his prediction of Peter's future suffering for his sake. Here's how one person has put it. A Christian gospel ends properly, not with the appearance of the risen Lord to his disciples and their belief in him, but with a confident statement that this mission to the world undertaken at his command and under his authority will be the means by which many are saved. And you see, that's what chapter 21 is doing for John's gospel. It reminds us again that now Jesus has laid down his life in death on the cross and taken it up again in resurrection in order to complete the work the Father has given him. Now is the time for the disciples to begin the work that Jesus has given them of being his witnesses to the world. Now, of course, that starts with them. They were the eyewitnesses to his resurrection. But it continues even today. This work is still going on for the disciples of Jesus. That's why we spent the whole second half of term one with our church family spots, trying to help each other get on board with God's mission. That's why we spent all that time trying to encourage each other to invite family and friends and neighbours, colleagues, to come into our services across Good Friday and Easter Sunday so that they could hear about Jesus' passion for our eternal life. It's why we've been encouraging each other to invite anyone we know who's got primary age kids to get them to come to our Mythbusters Kids Club on Tuesday. It's why we want to ask people to consider doing the Dine and Discover Jesus courses. See, the whole thing is fitting into this mission of the gospel that is now the work of Jesus' disciples. Because the end point of the gospel is not simply us. It's not simply that we would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing that we would have life in his name. Now, if we ourselves have come to believe that about Jesus, then we too are now to proclaim this message of eternal life so that others can come to share in what we also have, God's gift of salvation. And this is what chapter 21 sets up for us. This expectation of the future, of the future mission of Jesus' disciples to proclaim him to the world, even if they must through suffering. But John does have one last thing to say very, very briefly. It's the final focus of everything. It's verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. I think my favourite sentence in all of John's Gospel comes from John the Baptist back in chapter 3. He was testifying to Christ. And at one point he said this, uh, in relation to himself and Jesus. It's, it's remarkably self-effacing. This is what he said. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Is it not a stunning thing for someone to say who is a disciple of Jesus? Especially John, such a significant place in the scheme of God's plans of salvation. But he must become greater. I must become less. And I think that's what this verse does for chapter 21. Because you see, as important as it is that we come to understand the ongoing gospel mission in which disciples of Jesus will always be involved, 
that idea is never to loom so large in our consciousness that we lose sight of the one who is actually the focus of the gospel, who is Jesus Christ. The one who in the very beginning both was God and was with God, who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, who is at the Father's side and has now made God known, who has opened up the way to eternal life, who has completed the work that his Father gave him to do, and who now sends his people out on mission in the world. John wants us to finish not by thinking about the disciples and their work, as real as that is, but by seeing Jesus for whom all the books in the world would not be enough to write down the things that he has done. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the mission of the gospel in which you call us to take a part. And so we do pray for our Mythbusters Kids Club on Tuesday and our Dine and Discover Jesus courses. We pray that all these things might be used by you and our Easter services last Sunday and Friday. That all these things might be used by you to bring people into your kingdom. We pray that you'd continue to train us to be those who proclaim Christ in the world. But most of all, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we might run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.